Hey, beloved, let me ask you something. Have you, um, have you ever read something in God's Word, the Scriptures, that made you uncomfortable about God? Just think about that for a second. If you haven't, then I don't think you need to do a little more reading. <laughs> I mean, I think, personally, I think this is partly why some people avoid the Old Testament, in part. There's a lot of stuff in there that can make you uh, very uncomfortable concerning God, concerning the things He does. We are in a chapter that makes people uncomfortable. It makes people uncomfortable. And I think what happens often is this chapter, this has already been mentioned, this chapter is simply skipped. Uh, Pastors will just skip over it. Or they will... Uh, go through it, but they make, they make the uncomfortable somehow comfortable. I think that's a mistake. I think that's a mistake. To me, and, and I don't want to get started on this because I could spend the whole afternoon, it's like politicians. It's like politicians. You know, I just have a, a disdain, generally speaking. I know there's good ones. I don't know where they are, but I know there's good ones <laughs> for politicians because I feel like they simply... Poll, poll people, do data research, mining. They figure out what people want to hear, right? And they tell them what they want to hear. Whether or not that's true of them or not, they tell them what they want to hear. It's a canned, packaged kind of thing. And, and what they definitely don't want to do, what they don't want to do is, is make you feel uneasy or uncomfortable with them, right? So they don't want to say anything to irritate you or upset you in any way. Beloved, I think the same thing happens in pulpits. Unfortunately, I think sometimes pastors will avoid those things that might make us uncomfortable or maybe even irritate us. Uh, One thing you get with me is that's not me. I'm just going to say what it says. That's it. That's what I'm I'm striving to do every Sunday that I get up here. I don't want to say less than what the Word of God says, and I don't want to say more than it says. I just want to say what it says. I'm uncomfortable too, beloved. But let me just say something. If you're not uncomfortable with God, if there's, there's, you're just so like, hey, he's just my, he's my buddy, he's my buddy. I, I think you don't know God uh, fully. You don't know him fully. When we talk about the holy terror of God, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Beloved, that includes a holy terror. It's... It's when you come face to face with the Creator, there's some fear. Or at least there should be if you know who He really is. It's humbling, beloved. It's humbling. He is not us. Do you understand? He is not us. And we, uh, we do a disservice to God to draw Him down, to try to make Him us. He is not us. He is exalted above us. He is altogether not us, beloved. So with that, with that, no, one more thing. And we have communion this morning, so you know this is going to go bad already because I'm pushing the time limits here. But just think about this. Here's another question. Is the Lord righteous in all his ways? Based on what? 
Yeah, the word. Do you know how we know he's righteous in all his ways? Because that's right, because he tells us. It's not because I determine that he's righteous in all his ways. It's not because I stand as judge and jury over God, and I say, God, if you do this, and you do that, and you do it this way, and you don't do this, and you don't do that, then I determine you are righteous in all your ways. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that, beloved. We say God is righteous in all his ways because he has told us he is righteous in all his ways. Do you understand? I want you to think about it. If you've never thought about that, think about it. Because one of the uh, things that I get when I'm, when I'm talking to people who are trying to maybe just understand God or understand the Bible, sometimes they'll begin to question something about God. Well, I don't think that's right. Well, okay. But who cares? I mean, not that we don't care, not that we don't want to help people work through those things, but in the end, ultimately, it doesn't matter if I think God is right or not. It only matters what is true, what is real, and what is real is what God says is real because he's the author of reality. You see what I'm saying? That's a different kind of perspective on God. God is God, end of story. He is who he is, and I need to let God be God. Here we go. We're going to begin in verses, verse 10 for some context. We're going to read all the way through verse 23. Okay? You ready? Me too. Oh, here's something else I thought about. <laughs> this, I, this is why one of the reasons I hate this hour thing, right? At a, uh, it is now, your stomach thinks, it is now 11.52. And I should be done with preaching and you should be off to go get something to eat. Focus. <laughs> Discipline your minds, my beloved sisters and brothers in Christ. Here we go. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau. I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? That's some, 
I'm heavy stuff, guys. That's some heavy stuff. Let's do a little review. In verses 1 through 5, we looked at the apparent problem of Jewish unbelief or the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, that, that rejection is, was by the majority of the Jewish nation or the nation of Israel. And we've said this before, but why might that appear to be a problem? Well, because the promises that God made to the nation of Israel were tied to the Messiah and their acceptance of him. So, in light of the rejection or their rejection, the Jewish nation's rejection of the Messiah, those promises of God appeared to have failed. But Paul insists that in spite of widespread Jewish unbelief, God's word has not failed. Why? Well, first off, it is because God works according to the principle of election. Sovereignly choosing some and not others to be the recipients of his promised blessings. We, we saw that in verses 6 through 13, that God's promised blessings are enjoyed solely on the basis of God's sovereign choice of that individual. A choice, by the way, that has no basis in the person themselves or in their personal circumstances, a choice that is free from any and all human influence. And that is exactly what we saw with the Old Testament example of Jacob and Esau. Speaking about God's choice of Jacob and not Esau, remember that, he chose Jacob and not Esau, right? One writer, one pastor says this, he says this, before they were even born, he's just, he's just, this is all by review now. Before they were even born, before they had ever done good or evil, God, according to election, chose Jacob. Had nothing to do with Jacob. Had nothing to do with what he did. Nothing to do with what he was going to do. It had only to do with the good pleasure of God and his elective sovereign purpose. That's the point. And so this sovereign electing activity of God helps us understand why then, when the Messiah came, that only some Jews believed or embraced him, but many others didn't because they, or Paul's fellow Israelites, were not all chosen by God. And that may be hard for us to accept or fully grasp, okay? But I've said this before. That doesn't make it untrue. That doesn't make it untrue. But as Paul has done before in Romans, he pauses after verse 13 to raise some objections. Maybe you have some objections. He raises some objections to his teaching that he may have anticipated in light of what he, he knew he just said, or maybe he had heard them before. He was a, a church 
planting guy. He, he was preaching the gospel. He was planting churches. He was explaining the gospel to people. So he may have heard these objections before. And so he raises them. Why? That he might answer them. We've seen this before. Do you remember like in Romans 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1? Do you remember what he says there? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why did he say that? Why did, he, why did he stop and ask that question? Well, because in chapter 5, verse 20, he said, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So because of his gospel message, he says, here's a potential objection to what I just said. Let's deal with it. He does the same thing in, in chapter 7, verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Why would anybody say that? Well, because in verse 5, Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death, or for death. Wait a minute, is the law sin? And then Paul deals with that. Of course it's not. Of course it's not. So here we are again. Paul has just said some pretty significant things. Here's a potential or possible objection. And he's going to deal with it, and so are we. So this week and next, we will consider two objections. This is the outline inside of your bulletin. Two objections to Paul's teaching of election so that we might understand why both objections are not valid. They're not valid. Okay? You ready? All right. Chapter 9, verse 14. Look back at verse 14. What shall we say then? Based on what I just told you, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So here it is. In light of what Paul has said, think about the context. In light of what Paul has said concerning God's choice of Jacob Jacob, over Esau, in light of the fact that God chose one and rejected the other, And he did this not because of anything the twin brothers had done or would do. One, based on all that, one might object and say, that makes God out to be unjust. Or means that God acted contrary to what is right. God did something wrong. God did something wrong. But Paul says, "Mm -mm, no way, absolutely not. That is definitely not the case. That's what it means by no means. It's the strongest way to say no in the Greek. No, no, no. God is not unjust. God is not unjust in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau. Fine, Paul, tell me why. Tell me why. Well, that's where it really gets interesting. This is where it really gets interesting. Now listen carefully. I mentioned this last week. Paul does not say this. He does not say this. Of course there is no wrongdoing on God's part in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau because his choosing took into, the, into account the faith of one and the unbelief of the other. 
Or, to say it another way, God knew Jacob would believe and follow him, and he knew Esau wouldn't, so God's choice was entirely just or morally right. Paul doesn't say that. You see that anywhere in there? Just double check. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that anywhere in all the scriptures. And yet that is what some Christians believe. They believe that that is the basis of God's sovereign choice or his election. And for them, that proves that God is not unjust in choosing one person over another. For them, that's how they get there. That's... That's the criteria for them that God must meet. You can't just be choosing people. There, there must be, there must be some. Okay, it's because he sees, he knows, he knows that one will have faith and the other won't. And, and that's, that's why he does it. And, 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 and that's how he can remain right in his choice. Now, beloved, not only does it not say that, but the answer that Paul gives is it floors you. It floors you. Watch. Watch. This is how the Apostle Paul, okay, the authorized representative of Jesus Christ, this is how he proves God is not unjust in his act of choosing. This is how he proves it. You ready? Romans 9, 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, here's what Paul does. He doesn't, he doesn't philosophize. He doesn't give us some, some very deep kind of way to try to get at this so we can feel comfortable with this choosing act of God. He doesn't do that. Rather, He quotes God's words to Moses, recorded for us in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Why? To show us, to show us that God, listen, God is not obligated or bound in any way to show mercy or compassion to anyone, to anyone. Rather, he has the right to dispense it on whomever he wills. And that is exactly what he does. That is exactly what he does. One illustration of that is the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob received mercy, right? He received mercy, something he didn't earn or deserve, But he received mercy in the fact that he, by God's sovereign choice alone, became the heir of the promises God made to Abraham, and Esau didn't. See, listen, as far as Paul is concerned, this will just kind of blow your mind, the standard by which God must be judged 
The standard is not a standard based on what sinful human beings might think is right or wrong or is just or unjust, but rather the standard is nothing less and nothing more than God himself. He's the standard. He is the standard of what is right and what is wrong. And God has revealed to us who he is in his word. And his word says, listen, he has the absolute freedom to show mercy to whomever he chooses. And in his purpose for election, that is what he has done. So he has done nothing wrong because he has done nothing contrary to who he is. He has done nothing contrary to who he is. The sovereign one who has mercy on whomever he chooses. So the bottom line is this, beloved. God is never in the wrong or acting or acting contrary to what is right, okay, when he is simply being faithful to who he is or doing that which reflects his very nature. And one of God's basic, basic characteristics is his freedom to bestow mercy on whomever he chooses. Now that... You know, I have lots of time to think about these things, and maybe that's the first time you're hearing such things, but you need to think about that for a while. You're going to have to think about it for a while. You're going to have to let that sit in. Now watch. In verse 16, Paul draws a conclusion concerning God's revelation about himself to Moses. Here's his conclusion. Chapter 9, verse 16, based on what God said to Moses. So then, so then, it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. First, the it, the it in verse 16 most certainly refers back to the bestowal of mercy that, God, that Paul just referred to in verse 15. So Paul is saying, listen, since God has declared that it is a basic characteristic of his, his inherent right to have mercy on whomever he wills, then it doesn't, nor can it, depend on human will or exertion. In other words, it isn't and can't be based on what human beings purpose or choose to strive for or on any human effort. Rather, it, God's mercy, is only extended because of his entirely free, sovereign choice. Because that very act reflects who he truly is. He answers to no one. He answers to no one, beloved, nor can he be obligated in any way or by anyone to do what he does. See, I might say, hey, you showed it to Jacob. You should have showed it to Esau too. Can God be obligated in such things? If he can be, 
If that is the case, then he would be acting contrary to his very nature. And he would be wrong. He would be wrong. Or in the wrong. Now in verse 17, Paul draws out another quote from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, and it's concerning God's purpose with Pharaoh. God's purpose with Pharaoh. But why? Well, I believe it is not only to show the other side or the negative side of God's sovereignty and election, that while he chooses some, he rejects others. Or as it says in verse 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And if you are here last week, I explained to you a better way to understand hated would be in the context, Jacob I loved, I chose, Esau I hated, I rejected. But also, along with verses 15 through 18, it serves here, verse 17 and 18, it serves as another reason to refuse the idea that God is unjust in his act of choosing. And why is that? Listen, because just as God's sovereign act of choosing is consistent with who he is or his character or nature, so it can also be said to be consistent with his purposes, with his purposes, which means that God chooses and works sovereignly, but not arbitrarily, not arbitrarily or without any reason. Listen, God's not up there just throwing dice, you know, or like he has a thing on the board and he's like, choose them or not, choose them or not. No, okay. Look at me, I'm sovereign, I can do whatever I want. I mean, even that wouldn't be sovereignty because then the board would be deciding who would be elect, who he would bestow his mercy on. No, even the roll of the dice. God has a purpose, beloved, in the things that he does, including his election. He has a purpose. Now, I have to remember, is God righteous in all of his ways? Says who? Says him. Says him. Now, if you want to, you know, be so bold to disagree with him in such things, you do that on your own. Don't bring me with you. God, who is entirely righteous, has a righteous purpose in all that he does, but what he does, what he does is entirely a matter of his own sovereign will and is absolutely free from any human influence. Look at verses 17 and 18. We'll look at them together, and then we'll look at this closer. Paul says this, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. (laughs) Verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. All right? Paul's quote from Exodus is, is one of the statements, one of the statements that God told Moses to say to Pharaoh when he was going to Pharaoh or going before him for the sixth time to demand the release of the people of Israel. And in that quote, God says, he is the one who raised up 
this particular pharaoh, the, the big guy in charge, meaning that this pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt because God providentially worked to put him there. Deal with that, too. Because, you know, you want to talk about all the, the rulers that are on the face of the planet? Not a one of them are there by accident. Not a one. That's a little mind-boggling. That hurts uh, our heads. We don't understand these things exactly, but we have to accept what the Word of God says. But God had a purpose, beloved. This wasn't random. Hey, I'm going to try this guy out. He had a purpose in raising up this particular Pharaoh. This Pharaoh would be the ruler through whom God would show or demonstrate his great power and cause his name to be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what the text says. And that's what we know historically. That's exactly what happened. But how would that happen? How? How did that happen? Through a great showdown. I like that word. It's like a country kind of, you know, meet me at high noon. You know, a great, that's that good old country flicks. A great showdown that's recorded in Exodus chapters 4 through 14. You've never read it? You should read it. You should read it. It's a showdown that took place between God and the Pharaoh, who thought he was very powerful. <laughs> and it ultimately resulted in the great armies of Egypt, and they were great. In the great armies of Egypt being obliterated by God in the Red Sea. But beloved, that was after the nation of Egypt had already been devastated by the many plagues that God had unleashed on it. But maybe you're asking, well, why did that all happen? Why did that all happen? I'm glad you asked. The bottom line is this. It's because Pharaoh continually refused God's demand to let his enslaved people go. But why? You know, we should be children more often. You know how they, they always, like you say something and they're like, but why? And you're like, oh. And then you give them an answer, but why? This is actually very helpful in Bible study. It is. It drives you crazy when your kid's doing it to you, but practice it when you come to the Word of God. But why? Why did that happen? Simply put, simply put, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so he obstinately refused God's repeated demands. Who in their right mind would refuse the demands of Almighty God? Pharaoh. Now, this is where it gets really interesting again. And beloved, this is the part where people get very uncomfortable. Maybe you'll be that way this morning. Maybe you already are. And so what people do is they either try to deny that this is even here. They just deny it. I've, I've had people do this. They just deny what I'm about to tell you. Oh, that's not in the Bible. Um, or they try to explain it away. They have some explanation for it so they don't have to feel so uncomfortable concerning their God. Let me show you. Listen carefully. According to the Exodus account, the story, both God and Pharaoh, both God and Pharaoh are said to have hardened Pharaoh's heart. And at other times, it simply says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's all it says. 
without saying who did it. What I want to do now is quickly take you through the story, quickly, not the whole story, quickly take you through the story leading up to chapter 9 and the quote that Paul draws out and uses here in Romans chapter 9, okay? Or uses in chapter 9. All right, let's, uh, let's turn to our, uh, we've got Genesis, Exodus, second book of your Old Testament. We're going to turn to chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 21. That's page 47 in those blue Bibles. Nothing's going to pop up on the screen. I want you to see it there in the Word of God or the copy of God's Word you have on your lap or on your screen or however you view that. And I'll do it with you. Okay. Let's just read it again. You can read this whole story later. We're just going to highlight a few things. Just want to show you what's going on. Here it is, 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Before Moses' first encounter in this historical showdown with Pharaoh, what does God declare that he will do? Harden Pharaoh's heart. Why? So that he won't let the people go. What? This is exactly what God... This seems self-defeating, Lord. <laughs> Don't you want them to go? Oh, yeah, they're going to go. When I say they go, on my timetable, according to my purpose, but first I'm going to show my power through this situation. Huh? All right, Exodus chapter 5. Let me just flip over. Verses 1 through 2. By the way, uh, chapter 4, I mean, this should be obvious, but I just want to point it out. Uh, 421, he says, uh, but listen, you go, you show him all the miracles, uh, but uh, he's, a, he's a stubborn guy. He's a stubborn guy. I'm pretty sure he's not going to let you guys go. Does it say that? Okay. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Afterward, this afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. That is the fulfillment of God's word. That is the fulfillment. Why is that occurring? because of what God said would happen. You're going to go. I'm going to harden his heart. He's not going to let them, let them go. It's just a fulfillment of what God just said. All right? So you drop down to seven. Another evidence of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Watch this. Verse 7 of chapter 5. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. The people are the Hebrews, the Jewish people enslaved under the Pharaoh of Egypt, doing all their work. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them, you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. 
I'm just, that's not there, but I'm putting it there just to give a little bit of flair. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Okay, so now we have Pharaoh increasing Israel's hardship, making their labor more burdensome than it was before this whole thing even began. Now look what Moses says in verse 22 of the same chapter. We'll read it to the end, 33. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? What? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Beloved, Moses sees the increased hardships as first and foremost coming from God. They're coming from God. Why? Because God was the one that hardened Pharaoh's heart. Oh, Pharaoh's still responsible because he says, look, he has done evil to this people. But first he says, why have you done evil to this people? This is Moses. He says, this is because of you. Huh? Hmm, that's uncomfortable. How about chapter 7? Flip over. We'll read verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. Verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. After the rejection by Pharaoh, God again calls Moses to go to him and demand Israel's release. And again and again, God says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart and therefore, and therefore, he will not listen so that God may display his glory by judging the Egyptians. You uncomfortable? Verse 13. Watch this. Same chapter, right? We just read that, right? Skip down to verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is one of those times where people go, look, it doesn't say who's hardening his heart. Uh, I'll do it. In the context, beloved, what did we just read? Based on the context, it is clearly God who is hardening his heart. That is a fulfillment of exactly what God said he would do. God's hardening his heart. All right? Uh, 20, verse 20. We'll read 22. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And, in the wa- and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile, 
died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay? Now, after the two exchanges between Moses and Pharaoh, in which the fulfillment of God's word occurred, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which we've already read, we have now the beginning of the ten plagues that God unleashes on the nation. Why is that? Why are we at this point in the story, though? Why has this occurred now? Why are we at the point of ten plagues? Why, are, why is this accelerating? <laughs> because Pharaoh won't let the people go. But why? Because God has hardened his heart. But notice that even here, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is, what does it say? Notice it. Right? So let's go back. So Pharaoh's heart, the end of verse 22, remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. What's it say? Yeah, as the Lord had said. Oh, where, where are we? What's that a reference back to? Chapter 4, verse 21. You're going to go. You're going to tell him, I'm going to harden his heart. He's not going to let them go. It's as the Lord had said. This is occurring just as the Lord had said. You can look at, again, the third plague. It's over in chapter 8. That's the plague of gnats he sends upon the land. Verses 18 and 19, same thing. But you get down to 19, the end of 19. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. As the Lord had said. This is all occurring according to God's sovereign purposes. This isn't God going... You know, I think, I think, I have a pretty good idea, knowing this guy, that he's not going to say yes. Hey, it's more than that. I know all things. I know he's not going to say yes. I've said this before. It's not a matter of God knows all things in the sense he looks down the quarters of time and he goes, whoa, check out what's happening. He knows all things because he determines all things. as we see here with this case here. All right, now to chapter 9, verse 12. This is what it says. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The statement occurs after the sixth plague boils and there was no interaction here between Moses and Pharaoh it's just the sign is occurring but Pharaoh continues to absolutely resist and we're told again the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh just as the Lord had spoken to Moses and we see that in chapter 4 verse 21 what he said beloved while Pharaoh certainly had a role to play listen he had a role to play in the hardening of his own heart it was initially Initially and ultimately, the sovereign work and choice of God to harden Pharaoh's heart so that God's divine purposes would be fulfilled, which is exactly the way Paul understood it as well. How do I know that? Look what he says. Look back at the verse. Chapter 9, 17. Now we're back in Romans. Flip back to Romans. Chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. This is what he says. That's the story leading up to chapter 9 where he draws out, okay? He draws out. So in Exodus 9, he draws out that quote. I gave you the story leading up to it. He now, in Romans 9, 
expresses this quote, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, Paul's conclusion, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The God, listen, the God who freely bestows mercy on whoever he wishes is the same God who freely hardens whoever he wishes, and he does so according to his sovereign purposes. Therefore, whether he has bestowed mercy or hardened, God has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. People want to philosophize this. They want to try to give some answer that makes you, you know, feel real good. I'm sorry. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. That's it. He acts according to his nature and his purposes. Therefore, he's done nothing wrong. That's Paul. That's what Paul says. That's it. What are you going to say? There's no injustice with God. <laughs> he's the one who determines what is right and wrong. Now, some Bible teachers, listen, have explained this hardening of God, all right, or God's hardening of the heart as the removal of any of his restraints or influences on the human heart so that the corrupted human heart is allowed to plunge deeper into its own sin. Like something similar to what we read in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says there, in several ways, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He gave them over. He removed any of his restraints so that they plunged deeper and deeper into the sin of their own heart. And, and, and they explain that that way because they want to point out to you that God does not put evil in people's hearts. He doesn't put evil in people's hearts. They're already evil. Hello? Yeah, see? But we know that because of the first part of Romans. You know where I spent all that time going through all that terribleness? Because if you don't understand that, when you get to things like here, you, you won't understand them at all. It won't make any sense to you. Beloved, nobody deserves mercy. Not in the context of salvation. Not a one of us. Not a one of us. You want to talk about what we deserve? Every single one of us deserve to have all of God's influences removed from our life and for us to plunge deeper and deeper into that pit of sin, rejecting him, spitting at him, rebelling against him. That's what we all deserve. But listen, even with that understanding of this hardening of the heart, the fact remains that God is free to do what he pleases with his creation. And he does what he wills, and what he wills is never contrary to what is just or right. That's the message. Now look at verse 19. This is how, we, this is how you'll know we got it right, because the next objection Paul deals with. Verse 19, you will say to me then, if the, Paul, if this is the case, and it is, you will say to me then, this is what you're going to say. Why does he still find fault? 
How can he find fault with me then? For who can resist his will? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) But again, (laughs) the answer may not be what you would expect it to be. And we'll look at that next week. That's good, man. That is good. That's good. That's good. Let me give you a couple things in closing, and then we will celebrate our salvation. Remember this, okay? I recommended a book to you. Some of you have gotten it. Uh, I'm going to recommend it again. It's called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful in trying to work through these things. I want you to just say this, though. You're never going to get a nice, little, tidy answer that takes away all of your uncomfortableness. One writer says this, The doctrine of election is shrouded in mystery and warns that theologians or pastors for that matter, are unwise to systematize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. That's, um, that's wise counsel. And what he's saying is, if, if someone gives you an answer where they have, they've removed all the puzzle of it, in their own minds anyway, uh, that's not the right answer. There is a mystery here, beloved. There is a mystery. How is it that God does this and yet he still holds man responsible, entirely responsible for their unbelief? There's a mystery there. How is it that we know that God elects and yet we know this as well? And I said this before. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true too. That's true. We'll talk more about that. Here's a final, final quote. I found this to be helpful. I'd like your minds to rest here as we prepare to celebrate our great salvation together in these elements who represent uh, the great sacrifice of Christ on our behalf that we might be redeemed. Here it is. Election is an indispensable foundation of Christian worship in time, right now, and in eternity, in the future. How is that? It is the essence of worship. Listen, it is the essence of worship to say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. That's Psalm 115.1. If we were responsible for our own salvation, either in whole or even in part, even if we had just a little bit of it, we would be justified in singing our own praises and blowing our own trumpet in heaven. But such a thing is inconceivable. God's redeemed people will spend eternity worshiping Him, humbling themselves before Him in grateful adoration, ascribing their salvation to Him and to the Lamb. Who's the Lamb, beloved? Jesus Christ, and acknowledging that he alone, alone is worthy to receive all praise, honor, and glory. Why? 
because our salvation is due entirely to His grace, will, initiative, wisdom, and power.